Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hospice News Elevate podcast. I'm Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, and today we're examining how pervasive experiences of domestic violence, abuse, and trauma are among hospice and palliative care patients and providers. We'll also discuss the different ways hospices can shape their trauma-informed care delivery approaches. With me today, we have Carol Fisher, President of the National Partnership for Healthcare and Hospice Innovation. We also have Dr. Cameron Muir, Chief Innovation Officer at NPHI. Before we begin, a quick note. Hospice News is able to produce these podcasts thanks to those in the field lending their voice. Let us know if you or others are interested in sharing your thoughts on an episode. If you'd like to sponsor a podcast, send us a note at editor at hospicenews.com. And with that, we'll begin our journey into today's hospice topic. Cameron and Carol, thank you for joining us today. How are you both doing? Great. And thank you, Holly, for having us. Yeah, doing well. Thank you. Yeah, paying attention to this topic and just a privilege to be here. Sorry, Cameron, I already stepped on you there. Yeah, uh, we're, as, as we're going to find, we're both wildly passionate about the topic at hand. So thank you, Holly, for the opportunity for us to share. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to give a voice to this issue. So, um, But as we get started, I just want to mention a little warning for our listeners that this episode may contain sensitive topics and issues, including mentions of physical and emotional abuse and violence, among others. So with that warning in place, uh, Carol and Cameron, I thought a good way to introduce today's podcast with was some background information. Um, Carol, you and I have kind of previously discussed this in hospice news coverage, just how you know, prolific abuse and trauma experiences are among seniors. And, and Cameron, I understand you've done some research in this too as well. So um, what we have here is this data from a recent study that an estimated, you know, one in 10 seniors are abused each year in the United States. And that doesn't cover their previous lifetime experiences either. So um, with these statistics in mind, I wanted to really discuss what that means in the realm of end of life experiences. So um, just our first question off the bat for you both is uh, what are some of the important trends for hospices to have on their radar when it comes to, you know, violence, abuse, and trauma, both on that patient and provider side. Um, Cameron, why don't you start us off? Oh, goodness. Well, Carol is the guru um, of, of a lot of this. And I always like to remember that in addition to being president of NPHI and a, and a, um, and a CEO formerly of a program um, is a social worker. So, you know, I, I, not only is your, so I'll, I'll just one or two points and then Carol, um, please jump in. Um, you know, not only 10% of, of Americans, some have experienced some form of abuse, but I think where it really starts to hit home in the populations we serve in the home and advanced illness setting in the dementia population, uh, it's estimated to be as high as 50% of, of American adults. So this is, um, I think something that's been um, quiet and and yet is profoundly prevalent, and um, we need to put uh, a lot of time and attention and shine light on it. So really appreciate you doing that, Holly, and giving us this opportunity. Carol? Yeah, well, you're so kind to, to mention my social work background there, Cameron. You know, uh, Holly, you know, violence, abuse, and trauma, we're seeing them as silent problems in healthcare. It's almost like this hidden, silent 
pandemic. And, you know, we're here on behalf of our 104 members um, all across the country. And, uh, you know, this is a pervasive issue for our members, for their staff, because the the statistics are pretty startling, as you shared. Um, I think the World Health Organization reported like 320 million seniors are going to suffer from elder abuse by 2050. You know, that's a that's a staggering statistic and really concerning. And I think the other thing I want to mention is that abuse um, it, it comes in different forms. So there's neglect, there's physical abuse, certainly sexual abuse. It's more kind of traditional what we what we think of with abuse. But there's abandonment, there's emotional, psychological abuse, financial abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, to self-neglect in the elderly. And just from a financial abuse perspective, um, it's the fastest growing form of elder abuse with theft scams growing in large numbers, like in the billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make sure that as we're talking about this, we're being real, real clear that there's many sides to abuse. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's important to understand that. Yeah, that there's many shapes of that abuse, too. And I would just add from the provider side, we're, we're talking about, and I love that this is almost like a prism uh, in the sense that we're not talking just about the patient. Um, we're talking about the family caregivers, the paid caregivers, and also the health professionals, the healthcare professionals that are going into folks' homes. So, you know, we, we all have this lived experience um, and given the prevalence of the many different forms, as, as Carol highlights, of, of different forms of abuse, um, you know, uh, this is this is prevalent for for everyone that's in the home. Uh, again, from patient to caregiver, paid and unpaid, and, and professional services. So, yeah, uh, really important. Yeah, it's not just the, the patients that we're talking about, Karen. Yeah, it is those professionals providing that care, that interdisciplinary team. Um, and what they're going through and and that impacts how their ability to sort of help those patients in their experiences as well, if they have any of those experiences mirrored in their own, you know, lifetimes. So um, it's really that compounded issue. And I wanted to dig into that sort of silent epidemic going on here, because there are many instances of abuse and trauma that go underreported or not at all. So what's important for hospices to sort of understand about that silence? It goes kind of alongside abuse and trauma. Well, you know, our members um, really take this seriously because they understand that a large majority of abuse victims are not going to speak out. You know, they may be very uncomfortable talking with their medical provider, their nurse, their care team. So it it's it's necessary that we continue to educate on these issues and recognize that they exist. And the statistics are startling. One in three women um, have experienced some type of abuse uh, in their lifetime. And one in four men have reported being abused at some stage of their life. So hospices, our members really understand that they have to operate under this assumption that they're caring for a significant number of patients who been abused at some stage, and that their workforce has been impacted, um, as as we just referenced. So, uh, yeah, Cameron, what what are your thoughts? 
Well, I think we're we're going to touch on a little bit more of this uh, in, in, I think, the subsequent conversation. But the, 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 the thread I want to pull through to your very point, Carol, is, you know, much of the earliest um, sort of incidents of abuse occur in childhood. Um, and, and I think this is where a fair amount of the, um, you know, initial uh, traumas occur. And then that into adulthood um, we think about, and I want to kind of tie all these together, we think about domestic violence and abuse. And then as those folks, as we all age, um, we then become the frail elders in the home where we are uh, subject to elder abuse and neglect. So the thing that really struck me um, as we think about this silent pandemic is not only the, the stunning statistics on its prevalence, but also how it's a compounded uh, multiple traumas over the course from childhood to, you know, domestic violence in, in young, early and, and later adulthood, and then in advancing ages, elder abuse and neglect. So I just wanted to, and, and the prevalence and the statistics are stunningly similar in each of these different, and, and, and I actually think part of what we're doing with NPHI, Carol, and your leadership um, around these issues um, is is to pull this forward as something that is no longer able to be something that anyone is silent about. This is so prevalent, so impactful um, that we we really have to change um, our practices. Cr- truly, actually change our practices, tr- change our culture um, in our practices and in our organizations. And this is something that uh, we're really taking seriously and and teaching and leading throughout uh, NPHI member programs. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we understand. I mean, domestic violence, it, it crosses all boundaries of gender, age, race, socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. So it's an equal opportunity situation. Uh, and the other thing I'd like to say is that, the you know, the more mature generation, this silent generation, they grew up in a time when talking about abuse was shameful. And so they're very hesitant to to report they have been subjected to thinking they were wrong and that they were in fault and you know we've come a long way in the conversation but there's still taboos that still exist today uh and so you know recognizing that is really important yeah and just having those like generational discussions too because there's on that workforce side you know they might be in a different generational group than those that they're serving. So it's in providing their care to. So it's really this um, giving a voice to these issues for people that have experienced it. It can come with, I think Carol, you and I have talked about this in previous discussions too, where it's those feelings of shame and guilt, fear, or we just don't talk about this or, you know, we sleep that under the rug. It's in the past, or it can be very difficult to give a voice to these issues that you've experienced and, and, kind of walk through them. So on that kind of note, um, how do you both think the conversation around violence and abuse and trauma is sort of taking shape in our country? Yeah, you know, a thing that really came up for me um, as I was working on, you know, looking at the literature, one of the things we really want to, to try to do at MPHI is to have everything that's possible be evidence-based and and look at the data and try to be well-informed. And, you know, there are two, two results of that. One is the literature clearly indicates that screening is critically important. 
um, and that that this is screening for domestic violence and and elder abuse and neglect. There are validated tools um, and resources that exist. Um, we are bringing those forward to our programs and and having this be part of of standard practice. Um, and you know this is critically important to uh, then also realize that um, we can never uh, blame the victim. Um, this is not their fault. We need, and this is part of where I hope we have time to to get to in talking about trauma informed uh, care and therapy. Um, this is um, this is critically important. There's great ed- so then you screen first. The second is education. There are uh, actually quite a few healthcare focused education resources publicly available, PowerPoints, et cetera, that we've brought forward through um, our research and work to our members and teaching and training on, on the core essentials of, okay, here's how you screen, here's why you screen. It's actually been demonstrated to be safe to screen. There's some anxiety about screening, which then creates a problem that might actually put the the, the person who's been abused in a more vulnerable situation. And that's, that is not correct. Uh, there is data to show that screening with then appropriate education and res- resources uh, and support is actually a move in the positive direction. The second point that I just am really struck by um, in my career, in many of our careers, um, we really noted that pain was a silent pandemic um, or epidemic. And one of the biggest moves about 20 years ago was to make pain the fifth vital sign. And, and the, the premise of that is to assume, given pain's prevalence, assume that it's present. And once you assume that it's present, you look at the screening question on a zero to 10 scale with zero being no pain and 10 being the worst pain imaginable. What's your pain right now? The presumption is numbers one through 10 is positive and it's only zero. That is, you don't. I actually am, am thinking, and we have suggested and are recommending, that abuse and neglect, we must assume that it's present. And this is a paradigm shift to assume that it's present, and therefore we are screening for the domains and elements of abuse in the standardized tools um, and, and bringing it forward as a, as a unfortunately normal, uh, highly prevalent uh, component of, of again, both the patient and the caregiver and our workforce, our staff. So we have to assume it's there, assume it's present. Either actively present or it's, it's occurred previously, right, Cameron? Correct. Absolutely, Carol. Yeah. And Carol, I was going to throw this question at your way just as far as um, to kick it off um, what the keys to normalizing these conversations uh, might be in, in bringing more attention and light to these issues. Well, I think you paying attention to this and, and <laughs> investing your time is just wonderful. And, and can't we can't thank you enough. This is an important issue. Um, you know that um, there's some fantastic organizations out there doing work in their local communities and and also regionally, nationally, and across the globe. One of our partners, No More, is a global domestic violence organization that focuses on education, advocacy, and awareness. And so we're making great strides in talking about this important issue Uh, We have to really unravel these deep-rooted societal taboos about speaking out and removing the judgment on the victim. Um, Again, never blaming the victim. 
And, you know, for me, I've learned a lot about this subject because of the podcast, you know, that um, with the girlfriends and I have women just yesterday, I, they reach out to me, um, not just women, but mainly women, uh, because that was the emphasis in the podcast that mm-hmm. reach out to me and say, oh, my gosh, thank you for talking about this, because I've been so shameful um, that I made some poor decisions in my life and, and stayed with, you know, a man that that wasn't good for me. So I think, you know, it's important that we help people not define their mistakes, uh, their situations that are unfortunate as their whole, it's not a life sentence, Holly. Um, Mm -hmm. It's just part of the journey of who someone is. So I love the fact that we're talking about this. Um, I think, uh, you know, normalizing these discussions are just really, really helpful. Yeah. And I think that, um, just keys to normalizing those, you know, what do you guys think as far as like how these discussions around trauma and abuse can improve on the, you know, sort of the, the hospice provider side of things, you know, what would you say are some keys um, for hospices to navigate these communications and elements of support around them, you know, those resources? Yeah, well, so again, in terms of resources, uh, there are many, uh, three in particular, you know, national centers that have really focused on um, either domestic violence and or elder abuse. Um, and and so connecting folks with, with those three uh, leading institutions that have invested tons of time, energy and resource um, to, to, to reduce, to raise awareness and reduce the impact. Um, you know, one, and, and in addition, one of the learning management systems that many of our programs use actually has a whole uh, content area on the key elements then of, okay, so how do we change our culture and practice so around trauma-informed care? And, you know, just to get super granular, Holly, for a second, because this could be, you know, too conceptual to not be pragmatic, that really resonated for me in one of these uh, learning modules is, is, is talking a little bit more about trauma-informed care. And it shifts, quote unquote, shifts the conversation away from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And it's, I, I think these these sorts of questions, very, very intentional, is what hospice and palliative medicine and hospice and palliative care practitioners, clinicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, that's what we we espouse as one of our, our, our great skill sets is in communication and being super intentional with our words. Just think about the paradigm shift in, they're, they're each four word questions. What's wrong with you? as distinct from what happened to you, to me is just a great sort of tip of the iceberg of, of that paradigm shift and a really concrete example um, that, that, that takes it from raising awareness, providing training and education to, to then actually uh, adopting a culture and practice that is trauma-informed with the assumption that everyone has had some degree of significant loss and trauma um, over the course of their uh, of their lives, um, and and those statistics are are, are staggering. Seventy percent of U.S. adults have experienced some type of traumatic event at least once in their lifetime, and ninety percent of clients receiving behavioral health uh, services have experienced trauma. So this is again where this fifth vital sign, almost in this notion of of, of or reference back to pain, just seems so important to us to 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 just assume it's there. And so then how do we change our culture and practice to address it? Yeah. 
And I think that that was a really important question that I wanted to to touch base on, um, Cameron, when you're mentioning trauma-informed care, just what exactly is that definition in the hospice sort of realm? And then how can providers ensure they are really delivering that trauma-informed care with that intentionality? Holly, I'm humbled to be asked that question as a physician with a social worker on the podcast. Um, <laughs> so, so Carol, I'll take a, a first pass, but it's going to be guided from SAMHSA, which is a pretty good resource. But so okay. I hope I'm, I'm, I'm faithful in this. Um, it, it's, it's the notion that we've been touching on that fundamentally we need to appreciate that in childhood, people uh, have their first experience of a trauma or loss that has long-lasting emotional, neurological, psychological, social, and biological effects, and that those past experiences for a person informs, so those traumas inform the care that they need to receive, Um, that many people carry emotional scars from traumatizing experiences. Um, And so trauma-informed care reframes the relationship, and I love this, uh, because it's 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 the essence of the biopsychosocial spiritual model that we teach in hospice as distinct from the biomedical model. Trauma-informed framework, um, we act as partners in healing as opposed to a mental health or clinical professional that's an authority figure over the patient. So it already starts to level the playing field in part because, one, it's therapeutic, but also, two, the professional has almost highly likely to have been some form a, a victim of some sort of, of, of violence, uh, domestic violence. Um, and then SAMHSA talks about organizing a trauma-informed approach to caregiving that should incorporate three things, um, recognizing and affirming the prevalence of trauma. I think we've hit that pretty, pretty clearly. Recognizing how trauma affects all individuals involved in the organization, including its workforce. So this isn't just, in fact, specifically states, not just a clinical practice issue. This is the entire organization, including leadership, volunteers, et cetera. And then building practices based upon these. There are five principles of trauma-informed care, safety, trustworthiness, choice, collaboration, and empowerment. And then I think your question also wanted to get at, so organizationally, how do you implement and maintain a trauma-informed workforce mm-hmm. It's or organization? It's first an organizational assessment. We've already referenced number two, which is then creating a paradigm shift that goes away from we've always done things you know, this way. Um, and it can't just be a, a one-time implementation. Um, it's a culture shift, and this is really a culture t- shift towards safety, where you create a safe environment, a culture shift, which is number three, a culture shift, number four, towards an environment of wellness and self-care, um, not just um, of those you serve, but employees and supervisors. And and ultimately, this is where the prism we spoke of earlier, this is an all-play that everybody, um, uh, both professionals, managers, supervisors, staff, families, caregivers, um, you know, are part of this trauma-informed culture and, and practice. Yeah. Um, so really, right. really different. I appreciate that insight, Cameron. I think he's absolutely right, Carol. That second part of that question is probably good for you as far as, like, keys to building a workforce that, you know, understands um, the signs of abuse and ways to help themselves and others cope with those impacts. And what are your thoughts on that, Carol? 
You know, I think it takes patience. I think it takes acceptance. It takes time. It's tolerance. Um, you know, it starts with onboarding the workforce, equipping them with the tools and resources uh, so that they feel empowered to really address this issue and, and, and care for patients um, at the most critical time in their lives. I also would add, too, as organizations, what we're seeing with our members as they're taking this issue and, and, and shining light to it, it's not just helping the patient die well, which is first and foremost you know, what our members are here to do, mm-hmm. but it's also been very healing for the workforce um, because it's an admission and, and normalization of a very important situation and experience that then becomes normalized and accepted. So we're removing the stereotypes and the barriers. Um, and, and this is really important. Yeah, just to give them that ability to be heard, you know, seen and, um, and valued in their, in whatever part of that journey they're on. Right. Yeah. And when, when we're at bedside helping someone, die well, that, that's very healing for the person that's at bedside, the professional that's helping mm-hmm. them. And so there's just lots of great outcomes that are, um, you know, we believe will continue to build on as, you know, trauma-informed care is really top of mind and integrated and just becomes more normalized. Don't mm-hmm. you think, Cameron? Well, Carol, I was going to, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's a three-legged um, uh, stool or three, third component to this prism that, that you and I have talked a lot about and you have great passion for. And, and so you have the patient, you have the professional caregiver, um, the healthcare professional. I, I'm, uh, you know, t- talk a little bit about your passion and the work that we are doing and have done some preliminary research on within NPHI around the caregiver and the different um, archetypes of, of caregivers um, and and how, you know, it just seems that this uh, focus on, on trauma-informed care has an opportunity to really sharpen all of our blades around expert support of the family caregivers. Wow, that it's a, that's a great segue that I'm not prepared to talk about, Cameron. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you. Know, you know, Holly, let, let me say this, and, and we're going to come back and talk to you about uh, our caregiver research when when we're better prepared. We're really fleshing it out. What we've uh, what we understand today is there's four archetypes of caregivers, no different than you know you you handle things differently, Holly, than I do than Cameron does, right? So mm-hmm. understanding where a caregiver falls in allows our um, providers of of care to really meet people where they are. And we're really um, excited about this cutting edge research. It's a a newer innovation of ours. Um, Caregivers are, are stressed. I I can't, I can't say that enough. I mean, you, you know, many of the caregivers are working and so now they're dealing with an elderly parent um, and they're managing their own family and their own dynamics. So what we're doing is really taking a step back so we can understand caregivers better and meet them where they are, uh, not where we are. Um, yeah. How's that, Cameron? That's <laughs> <laughs> fabulous, <laughs> as usual. Um, and I just, it's so exciting to me, you know, as a, as a, as a physician in hospice and palliative medicine, I've always wanted to drive quality 
um, and not reinforce the medical model. So what I love about where we're going with this caregiver work is it's yet another way to amplify and emphasize the critical role of the volunteer, the social worker, the chaplain in the psychosocial, spiritual, and practical supports for patients and families. And this ties directly back into then a trauma-informed culture and practice and, and organization for all of our members to appreciate that all of these people that are the, the objects of our affection um, have had past traumas and to assume that and, and to really bring um, really much more skill and quality to the support of the, of the caregivers as well as the patient. I really appreciate um, both of you for sharing these perspectives uh, today and in talking about like, what I mentioned as being a very insensitive you know, topic to discuss. Um, but I'm, I'm glad, as we've all said, you know, that we're bringing this sort of awareness here. Um, so any final thoughts on like some of the largest takeaways for hospices um, when they're sort of navigating these issues and, and developing and shaping their trauma-informed care approaches? Just any final thoughts to take us home here, Cameron and Carol? Sure. Um, first, you know, keep it simple. Um, assume that um, uh, traumas exist and that, that violence and neglect has occurred. Um, mm -hmm. Screen, know the resources that exist. We don't need to reinvent wheels. Um, bring those resources to your staff and to your patients and your families um, and, and, and rapidly integrate simple principles to just take better care of both the patients and the caregivers. Carol? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I would just add, I mean, our mission-driven, not-for-profit, community-owned organizations, they have been doing this work for, you know, many over 45 years, and they are committed to making sure that people not only die well, but that that death is, is emotionally peaceful. And unfortunately, we only have one chance to make that right. We don't get a do-over. You know, if you make a mistake at someone with someone at bedside, you can't repeat how someone dies. So our members really take it um, very seriously and helping folks through any uh, preconceived views and perspectives is really top of mind for our members. And hopefully this is a message that's sort of top of mind for, you know, hospices of all shapes, sizes, all walks. Um, and, and again, I just appreciate both of you for lending your voices on this podcast episode. Um, it's been a pleasure to have you both with us today. Thank you, Holly. Thanks. It's always wonderful to work with you on these important uh, conversations. So, and we'll come back one day and talk about our caregiver research. That'll be fun. Thank you, Holly. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah, thank, thank you, Holly, for giving voice and shining light. Really important. Appreciate you. We'll wrap up this episode of our Elevate podcast. This is Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, a WTWH media company. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more episodes. Take care for now.